0: Father God, we thank you for your word and for the way it speaks into our lives. We ask you to open up our hearts to your word and open up your word to our hearts. In the name of your son, we pray this. Amen. So broadly speaking, there are two kinds of regret that you get to encounter in life. There are two ways we reflect on our mistakes. There's the first kind, I call that type one regret. That's the, the normal kind of regret that comes when You you learn later that there's information that you wish you had about a decision. You know, you can regret not buying stock in Apple in the 90s. You know, if you knew there was such a thing as an iPod coming, you would have done things differently. You regret not learning another language when your brain was young and spongy and good for that kind of thing. And if you knew then what you know now, that you would really like to know that, you would have done things differently, but you didn't, so you didn't, and you have to live with your regret now. say la vie. That's type 1 regret. Then we have this much more interesting kind of regret. I'm calling type 2 regret. I think everyone experiences it. Ideally, they experience it less and less as they get older and wiser. Type 2 regret is when you did know then what you do know now. But you do the stupid thing anyway. This is, I think this is the song of the undisciplined uni student. It says, two months before exams, I'll study later. One month before exams, I'll study later. One day before exams, why didn't I study earlier? This is a catastrophe, why do I do this to myself? Or the guy, perhaps more relatably, who opens the second last case on deal or no deal. 50% chance of winning a million dollars, chance of winning 50 cents. Or you can take the 100% chance of half a million dollars and walk away. What do you think, mate? Deal or no deal? Is a crowd full of people shouting at this guy, are you an idiot? Take the money! The wife sitting in the crowd smiling that special wives-only two-dimensional smile that says, I will support your terrible, terrible decision. And he thinks, Oh, I'm feeling pretty lucky, Andrew, I'm going to say, no deal. And then 10 minutes later, he is sitting there with a 50 cent piece in his hand, wondering, why didn't I take the money? It's so obvious now. I mean, naturally, it would be nice to have picked the other case instead, but why didn't I take the money when I had it? That's type 2 regret. It's the kind that you sit with after you've self-destructed a part of your plan for life, leaving you asking, Am I Stupid? Am I crazy? Am I addicted? Am I incompetent? Why is it that I can know the right thing to do before and after, but then make the wrong call at the actual time anyway? Why do I do this to myself? Why do I keep giving them chances? Why do I always end up saying this? It's a surreal sensation that you are sharing your body with a moron or with a monster. and if you've never felt that kind of regret then I would like you to write a book on your spectacular life and I'd love to read it but if you have felt this kind of regret then rest assured you're in good company because this is what Paul describes as his experience He says for I do not understand my own actions for I do not know for I do not do what I want but I do the very thing I hate and grappling with this is the very story of being human It's the story of being human because we live our lives with an idea of ourself, of who we are. I am good. I am clever. I am on track. And every time we do what we do not want to do, we're confronted with the fact that there are parts of us that we don't understand. And it's terrifying. And it's weird. And it's hard enough when it's just impulsive financial decisions or or acting awkwardly in front of people you'd really like to act coolly in front of. Once you become a believer and once you give your life to Jesus, we begin the real struggle of a life against sin. And sin is really, really good at making you do the thing that you do not want to do and then leaving you feeling like you are crazy and weak. And the Bible tells us that there are three primary sources of sin, the enemy, the world, and the flesh. So the, the enemy, the devil, and all his spiritual forces. And the enemy provokes us to sin by messing with our perceptions. He lies to us. He lies in very appealing and compelling ways. That's kind of the devil's jam at what he does. Now, when we talk about the world, we mean our culture. We mean the other people around us. Sort of the tide of other people operating in sin. The world doesn't quite lie in the same way to us. It's just sort of there. It's the world. It's what's out there competing for our priority, diverting our focus from God. And there's a lot more to say on both the devil and the world, but today we're mostly interested in what the Bible calls the flesh. Because the flesh, that's us, man. That's the thing in your heart that hides away and lets you think you're in control and then overpowers your conscience when you most need it, and leaves you wondering why you do the things you don't want to do. So we must ask the question, why and and how does the flesh make us sin? So we'll work through the passage before we play with those ideas. But before we do that, let's define our terms. We've got two big terms here, flesh and sin. And it's not immediately obvious what we mean by each of them. So we'll explore them now really quickly. Flesh is an important one here. When we say flesh, we know medically speaking, we're talking about skin and and muscle, the physical part of you. But biblically speaking, the, the flesh is your mortal, fallen, sinful self. It's not just your physical parts. It's the mind that's connected up to those physical parts. The mind and the body are intimately connected, and that whole package is called the flesh. The idea that our, is that our spirit is intimately connected to God, and your spirit and your flesh are sort of tied up together, and that's you, so you end up being at war with yourself. And if you're following along in a Bible which happens to be an NIV or a similar translation, we read that one from the, the ESV, you might find they avoid using the term flesh. Verse 14 in, in mine says, for example, uh, For we know the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Your translation might say, we know the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. Or verse 18, nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Another version might say, in my sinful nature. So why the different word choice? Why does this matter? Well, there's two reasons, and we can glide through them pretty quickly. The first is that there's a, an, old, an old heresy, an old false teaching that can come out of this, which says, since my flesh is the physical part of me, and my spirit is the non-physical part everything that is physical is already kind of evil and fallen and written off and everything that is spiritual is nice and good and out of that can come an idea like if the body's evil and it's going to be replaced anyway it doesn't really matter what you do with it it's wicked one day it will be destroyed and for the last two thousand years people have been getting that wrong in that way In early days it was a group called the Gnostics, in the last century it was a a cult called the Children of God that uh, operated during the the um, 60s and 70s and even into the 80s. Both times they ask, they go, the body and the flesh is corrupt and doesn't matter so what's the most fun thing we can do with our bodies? And I leave that to your sanctified imagination but it gets really bad really quickly. The flip side of that is that the flesh they you know, someone can say the flesh, the body is evil, so we should have as little to do with it as possible. You know, and in ancient times they had a group called the Manichaeans who made that mistake. More recent times a sort of a Victorian ultra prudishness that happened. They ask, What's the most fun thing we can do with our bodies? Let's never do any of that, or as little as possible. And this is all bad echoes of the way that the scripture uses the term flesh. And some translators go, we want to dodge that confusion entirely. Let's use the word sinful nature. Others will trust you and they'll sort of give it to you straight and trust you to understand that the flesh is not merely your physical body. It's not just sexual desires. It's the attitude that is part of who you are, that bends you towards sin even when you know it is sin. That's what the flesh is. It's the sin that is in you. And the word sin gets used in a distinct way here as well. Like in verse 20, it says, Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Not a particular sin, but the sinful nature, the flesh, that does it. And it's critical to get an idea of sin this way. The grand internal sin that is the source of our motivation for the individual sins we do, for the actions that we do. Because Jesus' blood cleanses us from the guilt of our sins, but the impulse of our flesh towards sin, that does not go away this side of eternity. So let's step through the passage and and see what Paul's saying. And as we do this, I want you to consider this question. Is Paul describing his struggle with sin before he encountered Christ or after He encountered Christ. Is this pre-Christian or post-Christian wrestling with the flesh? Is this the struggle of an unsaved man or the Christian man? So keep that in mind. So verses fourteen through sixteen again. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now. If I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So the law is spiritual. What does it mean that the law is spiritual? It means that the law is not from this world. It's not from this fallen world. You could say that uh, any law that a human contrived was subject to sin because it was made by a sinful man. But the law, the Torah, the commandments of God, they came from God to Moses. They came from a perfect source. And so they must be fundamentally good. And Paul says that here, that because he hates the thing he does, he instinctively knows that the law is good. And if the law is good, and if he agrees that the law is good, then what is this thing in him that keeps doing evil? Well, verses 17 to 20, he says, So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Sin that dwells within me, a.k.a. the flesh. And there's something heartbreaking in those words because they are so familiar, I think. The struggle of many. I have a desire to do what is right but not the ability to carry it out how can you be saved from something that is in you and Paul gives us an answer but not the clear one we might particularly like in verses 21 through 25 so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right evil lies close at hand for I delight in the law of God in my inner being But when I see my members, I say my body, my flesh, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Lord Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I serve myself the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So then, is Paul talking about his struggle with sin and guilt before he came to faith or after? It's always going to be a trick question when I pose something like that because all the smart people who write the books disagree about that one. There's the pre-Christian folks and the post-Christian folks. The pre-Christian folks will say, Paul here is describing a pre-Christian experience because when you are saved, you are delivered from sin. And the man Paul describes is so mired in sinful struggle. And Paul will go on to say again and again in his letters that we need to put off the old man and give up the sinful way and die to ourselves daily and walk in the spirit, not in the flesh. So he can't be commanding people to succeed at what he's saying he can't do. That's what the pre-Christian guys will say. The post-Christian guys say... Paul is talking about a post-Christian experience because no one struggles with the law and wrestles against sin until they are saved. Before that, they just sort of get carried along. And the Spirit can't be making war against the flesh because the Spirit isn't in them yet. This is a uniquely Christian experience. That's what the the post-Christian guys would say. As much as I hate to be a theological hipster, I think this actually applies both ways. I've been a non-Christian and a Christian. And in both camps, I was baffled by my ability to do stupid or wicked things even when I knew they were wrong. That didn't change. And it drives you nuts. And becoming Christian gives you names for those things and forgiveness and freedom from the eternal consequences for God's punishment for those things. But it doesn't stop them from happening, and it certainly isn't when you start them. And I use non-spiritual examples at the start of of the talk here. The deal or no deal thing, the student who fails at studying because the ability to have a true ideal, a long-term goal that we are struggling and striving towards and to turn around and sabotage ourselves for a a short-sighted action is not confined to Christians or even to spiritual sinful matters. We have self-defeating patterns of behavior all through us. They're locked in us and we fight them our whole lives. And if we don't recognize them and deliberately plan to overcome them, they win. And I think that's the key to understanding what Paul is describing here. When Paul describes the flesh in this passage as wrestling against him, it's it's very easy to get a picture that this is a spiritual war going on between uh, perhaps our soul, maybe with the Holy Spirit backing us up, and then a kind of evil spiritual limpet we're calling the flesh that we're waiting for God to sort of chip off us at some point, to surgically remove. Like it's an infestation, a supernatural thing. But this is symbolism, this is metaphor. The war that's taking place here, Paul says in verse 23, is between the law of God in his mind and the law of sin in his members, let us say, in his body, in his instinct. Both of those things are in you. You are the one who makes you sin. You are the one who is on trial for the sins that you have committed. You are the one who is forgiven for those sins by the cleansing blood of the Savior Jesus Christ. And you are the one who as a result of being saved now lives under a command to repent and sin no more. We sin because we have short-sighted, often selfish, often stupid desires that conflict with our greater desire to serve God. And just like the outline of your thumb can blot out the face of the moon, even though it's smaller, our petty, short-sighted goals can eclipse our greater long-term goals and even our devotion to God if we arrange them in that way. When those short-sighted desires overwhelm our better judgment about money or responsibility, we call that being stupid. When they overwhelm our desire to serve God and follow his commands, we call that being sinful. And this can be a revolutionary way of thinking about sin if you've never really owned your sinful actions. If you think of sin as something outside you that attacks you, then you're in danger of being too soft on yourself. You might expect defeat because you think sin is an outside force, it's an enemy that's too strong to defeat. For example, at this point, every time the Wallabies play the All Blacks in the Bledisloe Cup, we kind of hope the Wallabies will win, but when they lose, for 18 years in a row, so that there are people now old enough to vote who have never seen them win, when they lose, Australia kind of expects it. They go, they're better than us. They, they breed them big over there, man. What are you going to do? We will, would like to win, but we suspect it is impossible until something changes on their end. But our sin, our flesh, is not imposed on us by an enemy force that's too strong to beat. We do it to ourselves. We are both sides in that fight. James chapter 1 says, let no one say... When he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, brings birth to, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. It's our own desires that tempt us, not an outside force. We play both sides in that conflict. And our spiritual forces and the enemy in the world do play a role in that, but they do not make the choice for us. In the Garden of Eden, the serpent did not force-feed the apple to man and woman. They were self-inflicted sinners, as are we all. And owning that responsibility is the first step to having control over the sin in your life, to rule over it, as the Bible says. And you can rule over it. That doesn't mean that you can achieve a state where you never sin again uh, this side of eternity. But you can get out of the state in which many Christians end up languishing. Where they, they feel out of control of some part of their spiritual life. Like this sin beats them over and over again and they can't do anything about it. Now some folks hackle up at the idea that we are supposed to master our sin. Let me show you what I mean. There's a a rule we can apply when we study Scripture. We should apply. It's called the law of first mention. The law of first mention. It means if you want to understand a concept in Scripture, let's say sin, for example, you go to the first time it's mentioned in the Bible, and then you kind of use that as a frame and a template to understand what it means going forward. It's defined earlier and then carried through later, given more definition and detail. So what's the first time that the word sin occurs in the Bible. Adam and Eve? No, actually. it That's the first time a sin happens, but that's a recording of an event, not uh, anyone discussing the idea of sin or talking about it as a concept. It's not actually Genesis 3, Garden of Eden. It's Genesis 4, Cain and Abel. That's the first time the word sin is used. And Cain and Abel are very important characters in scripture because in a sense, they're the first two people who are like us. Adam and Eve are our progenitors of the first man and woman, but Cain and Abel are the first two people born into a hostile, fallen world. They're the first two people who have never seen perfection, who have never lived in a world without sin. They're the first people who, for whom the presence of sin in themselves and in the world is a given reality, the only thing they know. And that's like us. And you probably know the story. Cain is a farmer. Abel is a shepherd. And they both bring their offerings to God in sacrifice. Cain brings some of his crop. Abel brings the fat portions of one of the firstborn lambs. Abel brings his best offering. Cain brings his leftovers. God is pleased with Abel. He is not pleased with Cain. And then the passage proceeds like this in a very interesting fashion. Genesis Four six to seven. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. God is the first one to mention sin and his first instruction is that you must rule over it you must master it same word rule over it like a king ruling over his subjects as god ruling over creation for that matter i and i do not believe that god just commands us to make a point about how helpless before sin we are this is not the father speaking about how he must overcome sin in order to attain eternal life with the sacrifice of his son. This is the father speaking about how an individual must live his or her life in a fallen world. And his instruction is, be like Abel. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? Abel did what is right, he was accepted. So what does Abel do? He sacrifices his best offering. He gives up what he might want now, for the longer term goal. The more abstract goal, living in a life in relationship to God and not cut off from him. Cain does not do that, Cain makes a token offering that is not what God wants. And now the relationship that ancient peoples had with their crops and with their flocks was life and death and it's kind of hard for us to understand the value of that sacrifice, what they were really giving up when they were sacrificing. Indeed, why we call it a sacrifice. But if we discover that, then we can think about how we can apply that, what that's supposed to mean for us. Because there's a whole lot of talk about sacrifice in the Bible. And if we decide now that that's irrelevant, we're cutting out big chunks of scripture and saying this has nothing to say to us. So think about it. If you're a shepherd and you give your firstborn lambs uh, of, the, of the season, I guess, up for sacrifice, and then no more lambs are born, or there's a sickness that sweeps through, or something dramatic happens, well, then you're toast. You've, you've given up the, the lambs that would otherwise have sustained your, uh, your flock. And likewise, with crops, the way the Hebrews would do it is they'd plant their grain or whatever they're planting, and the first part of that was ripe. is called the first fruits that's taken, that's burnt as a sacrifice to God. And the second part is what you call the seed crop. It's what you take to plant the next year's harvest. And then everything else after that is what you can actually eat and sell. If you burn the first fruits of your crop and then a storm or, or locusts come in and wipe out what's left, then you're ruined, you've got nothing. Because if you'd harvested your seed crop first, then at least you could replant next year. If you've burned your first fruits, then you are putting your livelihood in God's hands. It's an act of actual sacrifice and trust. And there's no difference physically between the first fruits and the last fruits. It's just, it's all plant. But the difference in that sacrifice is time. Because time is what makes it valuable. At the time you give the first fruits, you're vulnerable. At the time you're giving the last little bit of all the stuff you've got, you're not vulnerable. And when an ancient Hebrew sacrificed his first part of the harvest or the first lamb, or when Abraham was called upon to sacrifice his firstborn, or when King David poured out the first cup of water he had seen in days, the only reason these things are valuable is because at the time they represent everything. And giving them up is really, genuinely putting their lives in God's hands. Time is what matters, timing and time. And this is why Jesus, I think, says it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of the needle than a rich man to get into the kingdom because materially speaking, it's almost impossible for a rich man to sacrifice in a way that it makes him vulnerable. When Bill Gates gives away a billion dollars to a charity, it's a fine thing, it can do good things, but I don't think he wakes up in a cold sweat the next night worrying about what will happen if the other $83, million or $83 billion disappear somehow. It doesn't hurt to give. It's not a meaningful sacrifice. It doesn't doesn't hit. A rich man who sacrifices even a huge chunk of his wealth isn't really giving away anything meaningful because if he did, he wouldn't be rich anymore. Giving away wealth and remaining wealthy does not expose someone to vulnerability. And this affects all of us because we are all tremendously wealthy. You can give away your last dollar in this country and still be reasonably expectant that you will get by on kindness and welfare. Money and things do not have the same value of sacrifice for us that they did to the ancient peoples because we are not living in that same time of scarcity. So what can we actually meaningfully sacrifice to master sin? To rule over it. And later in Paul's letter to the Romans in chapter 12, he'll tell us. In chapter 12, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Ourselves, our very bodies, are a living sacrifice. And we do this by being transformed by the renewal of our mind, by changing the way we think, by changing the way that we act, the way that we regard the world, seeking God's will and therefore doing what is good and acceptable and perfect. Because the only thing that everyone has which costs us to give up is our time because we're given 70, 80, 90 years, and that's it. And some of us are given tragically far less. And we know that every moment is precious and is to be treasured and used wisely. So seek God's will with it. That's a meaningful sacrifice. Do what he desires. That's our sacrifice to God. God's son died to pay the penalty for our sin. And the only meaningful thing that we can offer In return is our lives measured in time. Now, uh, a big part of my passion in preaching is connecting dots in a way that I I don't think people might have done before and and watching the lights go on in people's eyes. So I'm going to throw out a big thought here. Um, If this doesn't make sense, that's fine. I invite you to write it down, to to ruminate on it during the week, and then if you decide it's nonsense, you know where I work, uh, my email address and phone number in the bulletin hit me up about it. But here's what this is. When man sinned, God introduced death into the world. We see this in Genesis where God removes the tree of life after Adam and Eve fall. He does this because death is what gives everything in life its sense of value. What does that mean? Well, food is valuable because if you run out of it, you die. And your last bite of food is very valuable because it is the last thing standing between you and starving to death. And the years of your life are valuable because when you run out of them, one year at a time, you die. And if death had not come into the world as a consequence of sin, it would be impossible for man to sacrifice anything meaningful. We would not be able to combat sin with sacrifice. You could sacrifice everything you own, doesn't matter. You can't die, there's no risk, there's no vulnerability, there's no faith. But because we can die, we can choose sacrifice of something meaningful over sin, and that is how you have an ongoing and fruitful relationship with God. Sin is overcome by sacrifice. Sacrifice is only possible because it brings us a little closer to death. So think about that one and get back to me. All right, but we already know that we're not supposed to sin, that we are supposed to not sin. How do we actually do that? Well, we do it with sacrifice, and this applies not just to sin, but actually to overcoming all dumb and self-destructive habits. Habits, sinful or otherwise, are short-term by nature, and when you cave to them, you make them stronger. You can boil down the whole process into one kind of decision. Long-term goal, short-term gain, and the choice between those two. Cigarettes are an ideal example. Long-term goal, avoid increased risk of lung cancer. Short-term gain, remove stress, feel good again. When you have nicotine withdrawal, it feels awful, there are tension, headaches, and it just feels like everything is grinding along until you can get one more smoke and then you'll be all right. But here is the kicker, that every time you give up and you say, I'll hell with it, I'll just have one more and I'll quit after that. You don't just fail to quit. You actually make the instinct to walk away from sacrifice stronger. You empower the flesh. You make yourself more likely to bail out on your long-term goals again later. It's the instinct that says, The long term is too far away to care about right now, forget about that. That's a future me problem. That's the instinct that takes over right before we end up looking back at ourselves and saying, what just happened? Why did I do that? Am I stupid? It's the instinct that says, don't take the half million dollar deal. You're on stage and you're a rock star right now. You love being in front of a crowd with Andrew O'Keefe. And if you get your choice right, you'll be a legend. Forget the long term you're living now. That's the short-term gain. And it's the instinct that says, if you sin now, you can start sacrificing tomorrow. It's the flesh, and the flesh gets more powerful the more you yield to it. And if you want to rule it, you have to beat it consistently. That's why we have some people with what we call addictive personalities. Their flesh is very strong. It gets strong because every time you yield to it, it gets stronger and stronger, and now it beats them up all the time. And just about any short-term gain is enough to make them give up just about any long-term goal. It's a terrible way to live. Horribly painful for the person and everyone around them. But when you start sacrificing short-term thrills and gains for long-term gains, for the long-term goal, for the abstract goal even, for your devotion to God through your life, then the opposite happens. It gets a little easier to deny yourself each time. It gets a little easier to hold off impulsive decisions for later benefits. Easier to deny the short-term high of sin, which is the only thing it has going for it, for the long-term gain of a more profound and beautiful relationship with your creator and savior. And if you have ever wondered what the point of fasting is, this is it. Fasting is the, the secret weapon in the war against sin because it's a cheap, powerful way to weaken the flesh and the sinful nature. And if you've never thought about fasting before, I invite you to consider that. Obviously, if you have dietary complications, see a doctor before you try to fast. But for most people, even if you take just maybe one day a, a fortnight, one day a month, where you decide, I'm going to go 24 hours without eating. The spiritual benefits are actually tremendous because you're not just giving up three meals. You're going to eat after it's over. You're actually sacrificing your comfort for that day's duration because you feel it the whole time. The whole day, your body is saying, Eat something. And every time you say no, you are becoming a little less like the person who yields to impulsive fleshly desire and a little more like the person who is in control of their decisions. And that's what it means to be a living sacrifice, to rule over sin. It doesn't have to come through fasting, though I recommend that as a spiritual practice, but you cannot faithfully serve God and defy sin if you do not consistently defeat the flesh. You've got to do it. And once you get a roll on, you will feel stronger. You will feel more capable of encountering sin. More control in your life, less like a crazy person who gets hijacked by dumb instincts when a short-term desire pops up. And if you start every year, if you are the kind of person who starts every year promising to quit some habit this year, then this is your year. If you resolve every year to read the Bible more consistently and then you don't do it, or to start journaling again, or to pray like you used to, if there are things that you are supposed to be doing but you've put them off because the long-term benefit is too far away and the short-term alternative is right now, This is your year. Start now. There is something in your life, perhaps it is a sin, perhaps it's just an unwise behavior that keeps beating you and therefore making you more vulnerable to sin. But there is something in your life that is staring you in the face and crying out for your attention, for you to do better at it. Start there. Resolve and remember each time you back down to the flesh, it actually gets harder to stand up to it next time. That means that it will never be easier to defeat that flesh, to begin to sacrifice like you need to, than it is right now. It will be never easier to do than it is to start right now, to start today. You know what it is you're supposed to do. It's the failure or the habit or the sin, that one thing that you think about that makes you feel weak because it always beats you. But it will never be any easier to beat than it is if you start right now. And if you've got it, if you know what I'm talking about, if you've got your thing and you're thinking of it, then grab onto it and don't let go. And after the service, I invite you to take a note before you even get up. Write it in the margin of your Bible or text it to yourself. Find someone you trust and ask them to keep you accountable. But start today. And tomorrow you will be a little stronger. And a little better at being a living sacrifice. And a little closer to the Savior who gave up heaven and then life to draw close to you. Let's pray. Father, we owe you everything. You made a sacrifice on our behalf that was sufficient to forgive all our sins. You sent your son to die and rise again, showing the way beyond sin back to a relationship with you. So help us live in light of that, Lord, with gratitude, with servitude, with a true sense that we are living sacrifices, offering ourselves up to your will. Help us to discern those things that you would have us do. Help us to rule over the sin that would otherwise rule over us. And ruin our best offerings to you. We love and praise you. And may your Holy Spirit guide us in our resolution today and each day going forward. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen.